I can hear you. I can hear you. Are you so you, you said tur- we're going to do three well, episodes, uh, no, 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 one no, hour a piece. <laughs> no, what, what, <laughs> what we're going to do now, what we're going to do is uh, I have, um, I'm just want to give you a heads up. So I have, um, it, it's a 20 page script. It's and this is a brand new story, by the way. It's a brand new, brand story. new one, right? Brand new story. Okay, good. And uh, yeah, no, the uh, the next the next the last episode of the time goes up on the twenty eighth. Uh, I'm really trying to stick to a, a bi weekly schedule and and keep things consistent. So uh, it's been tempting to put it up early, but I'm like, no, 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 two weeks. I'm going to do two weeks. So um, so anyway, when we get to a midway point, uh, I have a an artificial break written in, and then a new introduction written in. So, you know, I'm, we're going to do it just because then we'll see what the time looks like when I get the the final, you know, the final edit and we see what what everything looks like. But just so you know, we're going to kind of there, there'll be like a break in the middle that won't be, you know, that's not a I'm, and I'm and Garrick, I'm not telling you as much as telling Mike, because I know what he does. He's like, all right, cool. I'm done. And then, you know, <laughs> click off. Goodbye. Yeah. Click. He's like, he's like, that's enough. thinking. <laughs> that's enough thinking for one day. Thank you very much. <laughs> get out get out while i can uh, i have um garrick i have one little uh audio clip of uh when when uh i had uh this a, a friend who's a comedian larry on he i went i had to get up i had to go to the bathroom or something i got up went to the bathroom <clears throat> i didn't pause the recording and i came back when i was doing the edit mike and larry are just like Fucking naked you know, gun moment. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah, they're they're back. It was great. They're back and forth. They're just like, and I'm one. I was like, well, no, and Brian, it'll take him an hour to write a da 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 da. And it was like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I know, I know who I am. I, I know. Sorry. Um, I, I it drives me crazy because I'm like, I've got to be able to pare this thing down, and then I I go through and I like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to edit this thing down, and so I finish and I'm like. I, I've got one extra page. How did I edit this down to one more page than I had to begin? With? I, I'm I'm bad. I'm really bad. So, at it. so you know, my so. father is listening to this now mm. as well. <laughs> and he said, he goes, sometimes I think Brian likes to hear himself talk. <laughs> he said, tell him, I said, he's kind of like oh, the old man, creature who kind of gets on a rabbit trail from time to time and doesn't know how to find his way back. So, <laughs> yep, yeah, absolutely. Check out the stars later. It's really trippy, especially on weed, man. Then I said, barmaid, set us up around that Colorado Kool-Aid. While you're up there, bring this big fella here a box of Band-Aids. Huh. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of shit, man unbalanced come on now brian that's pretty awful oh my god (laughs) he's unbalanced this guy is a lunatic these men lived in a much different time god we got some kooky people back in this time not obvious that we are professionals you're not paying attention we know what we're doing (laughs) but i'm serious can we start already Hello and welcome to Unbalanced Views of History. I'm Brian. I'm just a dude who believes that people's stories 
are the rhizomes that connect them into a collective and cohesive whole. We should see ourselves as mushrooms is what I'm saying. With me, as always, is a man who believes that <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to see it fall, it was probably a Republican tree and the woke mind virus pushed it over. It's Mike. How's it going, Mike? <laughs> Doing well, man. Doing well. How are you? How's your week going? The woke mind virus hasn't attacked me or anyone I know around me yet. So we're all still holding strong. Holding That's strong. Good, not, good quite like, not quite like uh, your end of the phone, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, good good to hear. Yeah, no, I'm I'm all woke mind virus all the time. No, you're not. Uh, <laughs> uh, today and for the next few episodes, we are joined by a very special guest, longtime resident of Texas, Colorado, and Maryland, all of which will come up today, I think. Uh, a man just as comfortable shoveling snow as he is chasing weird Austinites from his stoop, shopper of photos, fancy boy chef, and movie critic to the stars, as in he yells criticisms into the void of the night. <laughs> My very longtime friend, it's Garrick. Welcome, Garrick. Thank you. I don't know that I like being compared to a mushroom because, you know, <laughs> working in IT, I think mushrooms, you just stick them in a dark corner and feed them shit. So I don't <laughs> really know that I want that parallel drawn with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, um, so I, I, some, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially as I'm working on this, is roots, like how societies set roots. And in the process of that, I can't help myself but think about rhizomes because roots and rhizomes are, I know, this is silly. You can't but, help yourself, huh? But rhizomes, <laughs> like rhizomes will spread over miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And so like mushrooms will all pop up, but they're all part of the exact same plant. And so, you know, roots and rhizomes are the same metaphor for you know how culture and society that it's a but that said um we are really content to stick you in a dark corner and uh feed you some shit oh i'm here <laughs> that reminds me of the uh -oh. the, uh, uh -oh. the quote do you remember that quote from uh the novel um high fidelity i'm not sure if it's in the movie i don't remember but in the uh, high fidelity he says um he says man I've been following my gut since I was 14 years old, always following my gut. And just between you and me, I've come to the conclusion. My gut has shit for brains. Vaguely remember the movie. Uh, good Vaguely stuff. Remember the movie. Good, good stuff. It's a, it's a great, that's a great novel. Um, okay. Do you, do you know it was uh, 70 degrees here uh, this week? And but it snowed today. today. Yeah. It snowed today. Yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely insane. Uh, it was, um, well, actually, well, 76. I'll, I'll, I think 76 I'll get I'll get to actually. that in a, I'll get to that in a moment. So, uh -oh. Garrick, we are very very happy, very excited to have you join us. Um, this Our is, third gonna, special guest, by the way. This is going to throw third. me all. <laughs> yes, this is going to throw me all off because you're over here, but the camera's over here, and I've been operating on the same screen, and now I've got a dual screen, and it is like. <laughs> I mean, it is throwing me off. Okay. Welcome, so, welcome to my world. What are you reading from? The I'm, one that I'm you're reading, looking at? I'm reading from this one so that it appears oh, like I'm looking in your direction. Yes. yes. But you guys are doing it stuff does. over here. And I can't. Okay. You don't have to look at us. You don't have to look at us. We'll, we'll, we'll be making faces, facial gestures. <laughs> exactly. We'll be looking and talking at each other. Don't worry about it. We'll be in the chat, just just direct <laughs> chatting each other. So just in, don't worry about right. what we're doing. In, <laughs> indeed, I won't. I won't worry. I'm not that paranoid. Uh, so anyway, Garrick, we're very excited to have you join us. Um, I really believe that we need 
another frenetic personality like mine on the show. Not a not a dry sense of humor like don't. Uh, no, oh no yeah oh shit don't tell okay. me there's two of you now in the show no 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 was... this is like bringing bob newhart into the show nice <laughs> i love <laughs> i love that i agree hey i love your uh the initials too the gs that's super cool g money oh. g money <laughs> g money g money oh yeah <laughs> g so, money baby so real quick brian before you get yes. going Yes. In the spirit of unbalanced views, Mike, I need you to weigh in on something. Yeah. Brian and I had debated this in the past. I think there's uh-huh. only one right answer. But which citrus fruit is the better, the lime or the lemon? Unquestionably the lime. Ooh, You're not supposed to take his lemon. view on this. Thank I would, you. I would say lemon. As does everyone but Brian. So yeah. here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lemon is verdes. Anyway, lemon, lemon, lemons are fine. Limes are better. Um, I know. No, no I they're mean, like it. No, limes are like the typecast actor. You got one act. You're a margarita fan. Yeah, good for you. Just go jump in a drink. Fine, 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 fine. You guys want to live your lives with an inferior lemon? That is fine. <laughs> um. <laughs> For me, actually, it's really sad. I have like a whole drawer full of lemons right now. I haven't had a lime in a long time, but because um, they're first, because they've been way cheaper. So that's really why <laughs> I've got the lemons. So okay. So uh, before we get started, I want to ask uh, the our typical question that we we like to ask, especially when we kick off a new story. Gentlemen, what's your sunshine this week? And Garrick, why don't you go first since uh, you're you're our guest? So you're our guest for your audience. You want to catch up on what that is? Ah, for our audience. Um, so we like to start each week with just a little something because usually uh, tell some pretty grim tales. So I like to start with something a little positive. Uh, it's going on in your life, so that uh, so that the whole thing isn't just a trade wreck. Uh, there's some some happiness uh, involved in the story. Yeah, I, I mean, to keep you from from being suicidal by the end of the story. So right. you start you real high, real high. So that way, by by the end, you're not too too low. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so at the risk of sounding like I'm sucking up, I'm going to say it's today. And, Ooh. you know, had a pretty good work week, but, you know, you guys complain about the weather. It was minus five here on oh, Wednesday. Wow. So, yeah, boo-hoo. But today it was nearly 60. And my <laughs> wife and I sat out on the patio in the sun, drinking Aperol Spritz, pretending we're in Italy and just enjoying nice. ourselves. And then I get to spend the evening with a couple of friends. So, That's so awesome. all downhill from there. Okay, got it. That's got right. It. Yeah, don't <laughs> let me down. Exactly. Boy. Oh, Lord. <laughs> It's your his day. Yeah, it's uh, sorry. So, so, I mean, yep. at least it's earlier there. You still have some evening when this thing's over to uh, to recover your night. Let us uh, uh, let, let us apologize ahead of time. Yeah, that's uh, no. That all sounds great, Mike. What's uh, what about you, man? Anything good going on? You got uh, you got some snow, pretty. Uh, I very very like a dustiness snow, but it was snow okay. nonetheless. You know, it was still sure. colder than colder than shit here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Alyssa's up in, in um, um, she's up in PA for a cheer tournament, so I'm gonna go watch her. She does all that those crazy flips. I don't know if I sent you the video. She does the uh, they call it an aerial. It's like the handless cartwheel and the all oh, yeah. back flips and back somersaults and all that sure. bullshit. So it's uh, that's pretty wild to watch. Um, so I get to go see her do that first. Sure. Probably what is this? The first full week of my new job which went super well 
I, okay, good. They worked me yes. like some of the some of the characters in um in our stories uh, recently. So <laughs> I mean, it's been it's yeah. been <laughs> night to day, baby. Let's not start Talk that about, already, guys. I was going to say, I get, that, I get the reference he's making. <laughs> I Talk do, too. That's the problem. I'm like, let's do <laughs> uh, no. Talk about, you know, being a uh, uh, slave clock. You know, the yeah. clock theory theme that we had? Oh, yeah. Seven to seven has been my, my uh, you know, when, 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 the, when the master rings the bell. Seven okay. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm just giving you more so, work to edit. It's a one. It's a one to one comparison. I'm sure. Okay. You, you sure you're hey. not, Mike? You're sure you're not getting up at 4 a.m. so that you can get up, you know, and be more productive than? Oh your my gosh! Competitors. The, bell, the bells ring. <laughs> we had that. Is, we, we had. We, I think we. I think we may have had that conversation. I tried doing that. I tried getting up at 4 a.m. And I was I was ten times more productive. I got so much done by nine a.m. It was amazing. <laughs> but he fell asleep but, at six thirty, and it was a problem. Exactly. <laughs> it was a problem because he was still driving home. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so that's that's uh, a little bit of my sunshine. You know, um, there's no sports really to watch. I don't know what to watch. I mean, there's a there's a couple fights on. We got college ball fights tomorrow. College basketball. Premier League. Yeah, it's coming March Madness. Premier League. (laughs) Premier League. Uh, Premier League. What is that? Soccer? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Well, I will. uh, I will keep my sunshine simple uh, and to the point. We uh, we took this beautiful, beautiful day, eighty-five degrees down here, and uh, and sunny, but enough clouds that it wasn't. uh, You know, you you got a little break from it, and we went out. We drove up to. little town called live oak we've never really been there before um it's about an hour away uh you know sort of up in the up, i mean close to the florida georgia border and we went to strawberry fest and um mm-hmm. you know and and uh allowed uh a bunch of people to tempt us into taking our money so you know sh- sure pony ride that sounds fine here's take take our eight dollars or whatever you know <laughs> Um, so, you know, it was fun. Ella had a good time. She, uh, she participated in a pie eating contest, which, um, which consisted of them making like strawberry whipped cream in a bowl. And then you had to like all, all the kids, I mean, it was, God, it was, you know, like 15, 20 kids. I mean, kids like 12 and under all lined up and you had to eat it with no, with no hands. Uh, so it made for a good picture. Um, but then she kept saying to me, like, it doesn't make sense. Why did they call it a pie eating contest? There's a pie on the picture, but it was just whipped cream. It was just strawberry whipped cream. Why didn't they call it a strawberry whipped cream eating contest? Yeah. You're very she smart. Is, okay. You're you're very smart. Your father's just... daughter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How are the strawberry? Uh, you know, th- that's the funny thing. We we were sort of laughing as we left because, um, but the only place they were selling strawberries was literally on the. Like as you first walked in, they were like before you went into the building. Right after you, you paid to get in. It was like a small admission fee or whatever. Uh, and as we were leaving, Carlos like, should we get strawberries since we're at the strawberry fest? I was like, no, nah, I just bought some. So I was like, no, nah, I just nah. bought like I just bought like two pounds. For, I just bought two pounds like two days ago. So nah. But it's it's uh, straw. We get a lot of strawberry festivals right now because strawberry season opens at the end of February. So it's. It's not perfectly honest. It's not even the best time to buy strawberries quite yet. Like we're about two weeks away from really good strawberries, but like every town in sort of North central Florida, will have a, a strawberry fe- or in central Florida and up. We'll have a strawberry festival over the next like three or four weeks. So I think live Oak is just like, we're doing it first. <laughs> hey, you know what I used to do when I was a kid? I used to eat strawberries. 
with like a, a mound of sugar and I would just dip the strawberries, coat it in that sugar and eat strawberries, like by the basketful. I would never do that. Now I'd die and I'm, that'd be the and, perfect circle. But And that just says you had bad strawberries is what that tells me. That I you had no, lousy strawberries. <laughs> I, every strawberry I had growing up, that's what I would do. Just yeah, a no, pound sure. of sugar. Just yeah. dip it. I mean, boop, boop. Use, just using strawberries as a vehicle to get sugar into your mouth, basically. Yeah. Yes. Like, no, yes. mom, I'm not eating sugar. I'm it's eating strawberries. Like another, it's a healthy pixie stick. <laughs> there you it's go. Like the, uh, that might be a first for me. <laughs> yeah. never heard anybody. My strawberry, I mean, strawberries for me, my mom used to always pick them. Like we would go we, every year and then make strawberry shortcake and put them on waffles and everything. Like, oh, strawberry shortcake's my favorite. Those fresh ones are so good. For years, we used to grow them, um, but we had a garden when I was growing up. We always had strawberries. Uh, For years, we had strawberries. My father ended up um, like plowing them under because they had grown so out of control and they'd rooted so deep. They came back every year. And so they were like taking over the whole garden. So he like, so finally he was like, I I have to till them under because they're like, they've become a nuisance. They're so big. They're not, and they're not producing, you know, after a couple of years, they don't produce real well. So they just keep growing and growing and growing and producing less and less and less. So, uh, but yeah, it was, that was the best man. Just like, I I mean, I just remember during summer, especially I'm just hungry. You just walk down to the garden, pick some strawberries, like, you know, eat, eat them on the way back up. Uh, Good stuff. Anyway. So tell me today, we're talking about a pirate, a slave pirate that took over the ship. Make a, I think you promised me that down the We're line. We're going to talk about no, people that, that sailed across the Great Plains. Um, <laughs> yes, pirates. <laughs> We're doing a bit of a landlocked story today. So, Garrick, you live in Colorado. Uh, excuse me. What, uh, Bless you. What, do you, what do you know about Colorado? Jeez, don't ask that question. My wife's a better, <laughs> better one to ask that question. I know that I live here. How's that? <laughs> per- perfect. Resident <clears throat> expert uh, Garrick will uh, help us with our Colorado story. That's exactly um, right. I might be more unbalanced than, than Mike in this situation, but hey. <laughs> perfect. It's perfect. And and I set you up for I success uh, by saying, right. I don't know, man. You don't need to know anything. I know. Exactly. About, I know about John Denver. John John Denver. That's John um, Denver yes. was full of that's, shit. So that's, that's, that's good. John Denver was full of shit. <laughs> huh? I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of shit, man. There you go. <laughs> I know about a little place called Aspen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, with with this story, what we're this is going to be a little bit, yeah. Out there. This is going to be a little bit different, different than what we've done. In that uh, we're doing, a, this is going to be an epic, an epic tale, as opposed to the ones we've done previously, which were tight, controlled stories. This is going to be a wide ranging epic tale. Um, we're going to take a look wow. at a couple of big events in the history of the Western Plains generally and kind of Colorado specifically. And the way this story will be structured is it's going to kind of start kind of big and it's going to narrow as we we get closer and closer to the end, as we focus more and more on like a tighter and tighter region. But um, we're going to as we go along, you'll see there's going to be like a couple of sort of tent poles that hold this whole story together. Um, but we're doing it's going to be a bit of an. Uh, a, a wide ranging Colorado tale, uh, but hopefully it won't be that wide ranging. It's not going to be all over. I mean, there is a point like we're, we're heading to a point. It just won't be real obvious right away, but we are doing 
all, all things Colorado, you know, for a while. Okay. And Western Plains. Yep. As, all Coors Light, baby. <laughs> yeah, before that. Uh, as always, um, the, the point of examining the past is to, of course, better understand our, our rhizomes, our roots, uh, the foundational structures that define our societies even now to the present. That is the point. These foundational structures are essential. It's why, uh, like during the French Revolution, they even changed the calendar, the dating system, right? And they came up with, with like months like Brumaire and Thermidor because they, they, they understood that like that history rooted them, you know, that those dates and think those months and all that, it rooted them to some past that they wanted to make a clean break from, that that stuff all still matters. Um, the roots echo all the way through the present and they, those roots then create kind of institutional or systemic foundations upon which the present system rests. So with all that said, are you guys ready? I'm ready. All right. As long as you're not going to do time again. I'm not doing time. You started with the calendar there for a second. Maybe more. Just, just one second. <laughs> just. All right. Let's do some history. Oh, so like said, not a quiz, please. No quiz. Going to be a little wide ranging. Shit. It's going to be a little wide ranging. So, okay. Humans have occupied the area we call Colorado since Clovis culture flourished from around 11,500 BCE, near the end of the last glacial period. So, we're going to start there. 11,500 BCE. And we're going to work all the way. No, no. It's, These people were boring. <laughs> for the 13,000 years or so since uh, humans first learned to, learned to survive in the shadow of the Rockies, the area has been shaped and reshaped by competing visions, right? Competing stories about what the land is, what it might be. It's also a land of enormous contradictions. It's one of the driest parts of the country with sand dune covered desert, but also home to some of the largest rivers in the country, the Colorado, the green Arkansas, the Cimarron and the Platte rivers all make human existence possible in the region. For most of the time humans have lived within her borders, agriculture was nearly impossible, and horticulture was tied only to the floodplains. Like you couldn't horticulture being gardening, couldn't garden outside of those areas. And agriculture wasn't even uh, was utterly impossible. But the ample short grasses of the area attracted these great herds of bison. Wild berries grow on the riverbanks, enticing deer, elk, pronghorn, which in turn entice bears. Um, all of which provide kind of reliable, if you know, occasionally dangerous food sources for generations of human beings. The calamitous volcanic and tectonic activity that pushed the Rockies towards the heaven also left vast mineral wealth beneath the surface of the earth. Colorado is home to hot springs, beautiful vistas, and a harsh, unforgiving, and often deadly terrain. So in this story, we're going to explore some of Colorado's contradictions and the competing interests that sort of collide, uh, I'm sorry, the competing visions of what the area could, should, and would become as a variety of people and their competing interests kind of collide in the region in the second half of the 19th century uh, and into the early 20th. So we, we'll finish this story around 1914 or so when we finally get there. Not today. Um, well, we're not really starting at 11,000 BC. I mean, we're, okay. you know, okay. I mean, that was just like a, you know, it's, it's what you call a setup, Mike. It's a, it's a setup. Um, it's what we in the biz call a set. You left, the, you left the wolf out of your animals, by the way. Yeah, people don't really eat them. No, and they so, eat you. <laughs> they, right, that's yes. Well, I it's it's implied with the uh, dangerous. 
But the mm-hmm. the bear is uh the bear is uh is eaten and used, but also you know, <laughs> kind of deadly. I wonder what bear tastes it's... like. Oh, no, no, they used to like gaming. people used to use the the gre- the bear grease was uh, pretty critical for uh, indigenous survival, like throughout the the Americas. Mm-hmm. They would use bear grease for for all kinds of stuff. But anyway. Oh, all right. So we're obviously we're going to cover a lot of terrain, so to speak. Um, so we're not going to be able to do full justice to sort of any particular part of the story, but we're going to linger on a few key episodes. And I'm going to warn you, as I've already kind of have, it's going to get pretty gnarly at times. Um, we're going to be Ooh, dealing with good. some rather unspeakable things. Um, so I hope <laughs> uh, you guys can handle that. <laughs> all right. Because uh, it will be uh, it will be there will be moments where you just like. I don't want to be a person anymore. Um, it's just I would like to be part of a different group of animal that doesn't do this thing. Anyway, all right, or at least that's how I feel. I don't know. Um, it makes it hard for me to sleep at night. You guys are probably be fine. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm the one. Sure. With, I'm the uh, one with. I, I will the, actually. I'll bet yeah, on it. You'll sleep better. I, I will have unending yes. nightmares. You guys will be like, that's ah, fine. All right. So <laughs> the, the story of Colorado excuse me, like any other place is a story about how uh, various groups uh, groups imagine the place, you know, the space, how they envisioned utilizing the resources, how they sought to convert energy into power. Um, and this is really a story about storytelling, the stories people told about a place and the various meanings of that place and their place within it. Stories are obviously the way that humans make sense of the world around them, how we understand our place in the world. Stories are the key to tradition and progress alike, because, again, like stories root you to the past, but stories also sort of show uh, how when people can imagine a future different than the present. And that's how you progress towards a new goal. Right. Um, Stories in describing how people fit into their surroundings and what their purpose is tend to become a kind of guide or an encouragement for their very existence. They also serve as a kind of justification for the beliefs and values of a people. They They encourage the idea that certain traits, certain behaviors, certain values uh, are all natural, self-evident expressions, right? I mean, that's what our stories do for us. It's like, well, this is obvious. This is who we are. This is, we're here. Uh, They're the kind of proof that like a person is exactly where they're supposed to be and that their value system is exactly what it's supposed to be. And the stories reinforce that, right? We get, don't give me that look. I'm just saying that's half the problem that exists today. Sorry. But well, that's, I mean, that is sure. half the issue. <laughs> mm. Exactly. Because of, because of conflicting, <laughs> conflicting stories, mm-hmm. the conflicting yep. stories we tell ourselves. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Stories um, tend to also justify possession of place as well, right? We belong here. They don't belong here. That sort of thing, right? You, you tell yourself stories about the place. You mythologize the place. And by doing so, you kind of, you know, justify the the situation. So retrospectively, the stories offer a kind of proof uh, that, that, again, people are where they are because of some sort of like divine providence or inevitability, not the result of specific individual or institutional choices, choices that are generally inspired or influenced by far less lofty inspirations, namely people's inst- or, or institutions sort of selfish material interests, not like you know, these lofty notions of, of space and place. Okay. Few things brought more dramatic, more sweeping, more devastating changes to the region than the stories created about two objects, one living, one inert, both real, but also both imagined. Those two things, horses 
and gold. And when I say imagined, I mean real gold, but I also mean sort of the imagination, you know, the way that we imagine what gold is and what it means. And when I talk about horses, I mean real horses, but also what people imagine a, a horse sort of takes on a symbolic power or symbolic meaning, right? Unicorns, unicorns. That's right. I mean, unicorns. Yes, absolutely. You're not, get, you're not getting into Plato where you're like the, the, you see the horse, but it's not the horse. It's what you imagine it to be. No, we're not doing that, but we are, but we are, but, but I guess to, to a degree, it's kind of like, that's what's happening in the psyche to some, some degree. Yeah. This is not, uh, we're not doing Plato. We're also not going to do Descartes. Like I know this, I know that this is wax in my hand, but my senses don't, you know, Mm -mm. you went back far enough in time. I just had to be sure. Yeah, but wrong continent. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know where he traveled. That's you know that personally. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, Mike would tell you that he had been to Atlantis, but other than that, <laughs> it's a real place. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Um, they they both are real. <laughs> yes. You mean so, like the resort? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. In the Bahamas. Nice. So, okay. So in Colorado, great service. Uh, great service. <laughs> Uh, I don't even want to ask. Um, in Colorado, the competing stories around those two items, right, gold and horses, again, both real and imagined, will inevitably collide or would inevitably collide. And differing groups would imagine wildly different futures for Colorado and then set about trying to muscle those futures into existence. The collision of visions may have been inevitable, but the outcomes absolutely were not. At any number of points along the way, different choices, more accommodating stories, uh, whatever might have dramatically altered the outcome. So I just want to remember as we go forward that this is a story about choices. It's a story about competing visions and those stories still echo down to today uh, to reveal who we are and what we stand for. Those stories are the rhizomes of connection. Okay. See, ah, see. full circle, baby. Full circle. Cause I am professional. You're a rhizome. Um, Bourgeois. Sorry, I had to get that in there. <laughs> it's it's uh you just like that I use that word a lot. That's uh I think I drank I, every time you used it in one of the last episodes. I forget which one it was, but bourgeois. Well, bourgeois. You know, sometimes it's the right word. <laughs> uh, hey, I just want him to do a voice this time. You do a great southern planter voice, a great southern planter voice. Do the voice. I hope there's more, I hope there's more voices in this story. I want there to be more voices. You know, so. I don't I don't do any voices in this one. Uh Come sorry. On. I, and I don't know how I'm not sure I could do I don't know if I could do like a western minor, but maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll Ooh. practice in when we get to the uh western minor part of the story. Is that like a uh... Oh. Um. Mike Oh, uh, um, are they? Uh, what do they call those guys? Oh. Um, what? Oh, Lost you for, no, you're, no, you're good. Um, you're good. Keep going. Is that the? Are, are, <laughs> are they the? Are they the? Pro, are you going to do a prospector? Is that what, is yeah. that what you're going to do? Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll do some practicing. I'll see if I can't get a prospector down. Get the prospector. Go watch the uh, kids' movie. Uh, yeah, Toy Story. Uh, yeah, Toy yeah, Story. Yeah. Do the prospector. Yeah, I'll see if I can. I'll, I'll practice my practice my Kelsey grammar. All right. There you go. <laughs> I didn't even know that. I think Wait, it's called Kramer. Wait, Kramer? <laughs> Kramer. Kramer did the uh, process. Wrong guy. Yes, I know. Fraser okay. is who I meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fraser. Yeah. Yeah, Fra I... We don't want to bring race back into this. Come on. Uh -uh. <laughs> oh, God. All right. All right. So in uh, July 1536, 
four bedraggled, exhausted, and ghastly men traveling on foot through New Spain, uh, through the New Spain province of Sinaloa, were spotted mm. by. Uh, they were spotted the by cartel. A, you better be careful. It was fifteen thirty-six. It's a little early. Uh, they were They were spotted by a Spanish slaving expedition. The four men, three Spanish, one African were all that remained from a 600-man expedition that set out to explore La Florida eight years earlier. The four, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado, Andres Dorantes de Carranza, and his slave, Estevanico, were taken to Mexico City to rest, recover, and then tell their harrowing tale of exploration and survival. Again, four dudes out of an expedition of 600. Eight years. Eight years... They're spotted in. They're spotted in Sinaloa. They started in Florida. And now, where is Sinaloa today? Is it still the same Sinaloa? The Sin- yeah, Sinaloa. Yeah, Mexico. In, okay, uh, sort of Mexico. North, the, okay. North, northwestern Mexico. So from Florida um, to Mexico. From Florida down to down four. To down to four. Oof. It's it's a it's a hell of a story, uh, which it's we're not going to tell. Which we're not doing today. But that's okay. The men, uh, the men traveled through Florida across the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they sailed along the coast to Galveston. From there, they walked from Galveston, Texas, to the California coast, and then turned south to Spain. Um, <laughs> they actually, at one point, sort of as they got to uh, what today would be West Texas, they kind of turned south and then and then they went for a while. And I'm not sure exactly why, but they they stopped and they came all the way back up and then went to the California coast, like. Um, I, I'm not sure. I can't. I don't remember in Cabeza de Vaca's uh, narrative why. Like trying to figure out where they are as you're reading his, like probably his narrative. To, probably because he wanted to avoid New Mexico. Let's be honest. <laughs> probably, probably dodging New Mexico. Um, so when they so among the stories that they told when they finally when they got to Mexico City, um, they told tales of cities and towns to the north that possessed great wealth that they. Mm-hmm hadn't actually encountered but had heard stories about okay but they kind of being being dudes uh who've just survived this ridiculous trip they kind of exaggerate their stories they tell people oh yeah yeah, yeah. i've been seen these seen these incredible this incredible wealth but like we were in no position to do anything about it um as more and more of our crew died what were we supposed to do um and now of course these stories intrigued the spanish nobles in uh living there in new spain in mexico but uh, shockingly, the three Spanish survivors refused to lead a new expedition up north to go find those cities. I, I don't know some crazy reason. They were like, no, no, we're good here. We don't want to go through all that again. I can't imagine why. Uh, but they were they were un, unwilling to be uh, to be recruited. Mm-hmm. So the viceroy of New Spain, Antonio de Mendoza, sent a Franciscan friar, Marcos de Neva, and a small investigation, uh, expedition rather, to investigate the claims of these uh, wealthy cities. And he sent them in, sent this friar in 1538. Mendoza also forced Estevanico, the, the African slave who survived, to go along as their guide. I'm not exactly sure what happened. Uh, de Mendoza either purchased Estevanico or he was received him as a gift um, from the ones. The one survivor owned Estevanico. Uh, which again, the odds of that six hundred guys, the one dude owns a slave and he manages to survive with his slave is astonishing. And by the way, Estevanico, like the entire trip, is sent ahead to like every time they're like, oh, there's a settlement ahead. You you go, and he sort of 
it works in some ways it works out because he learns a lot of language skills and uh you so he's able to communicate with all these people but um obviously you're constantly like yeah going ahead um so anyway uh, they don't chop yeah. your head off we'll be right behind you so anyway <laughs> so the uh the friar uh returned several months after they they went on this expedition and he, i think mike's frozen Either that or he's super high. <laughs> he really, really likes that part of the story. It's so funny. Mike, I'm not sure when you uh I'm not sure when the uh the, the internet shit the bed on you there. Um did you hear about the uh the, the friar made it back to New Spain, right? After Estevanico was killed? Friar Tuck. That's the one. So, okay. Going to cut that in, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so okay. So the friar uh, Marcos de Neva returned back to New Spain several months after he went out to try and find this city of gold, and uh, or the, yeah, this just um, he comes back several months later. And he says he found he had seen this legendary city of Cibola, the lost city of gold. Uh, but Estevanico and several others had been killed there, so the good friar thought it was best to just you know like get a peek from a hilltop, like oh, I could see the city, but. The, they they seem to be killing all of my people, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna boogie on <laughs> back, and uh, and so that's what he does. And the viceroy Antonio de, de Mendoza sold his wife's estates, and along with a dude named Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, uh, they funded right. a large expedition to the uh, to find this city of gold, this city of Cibola, uh, seven cities that they they believed existed. And on February 23rd, 1540, Coronado led an army between 1,700 and 2,400 men, composed of uh, a combination of Europeans, uh, Mexican-Indian allies, several slaves, both African and indigenous, and, of course, Friar de Neva. And they set out to find the seven cities of Cibola. Now, uh, as you all know from your history, they, they found it. It, it, was, it. it worked. Everybody knows that everybody visits the lost cities of gold all the time these days. Um, no, instead, the, the army, the, the expedition was, of course, a bit of a failure. But instead, the army found uh, small pueblos and nomadic bands in the Great Plains. And the Spaniards kind of looked around and found very little that they thought they could exploit there. The uh, The expedition and those that followed were always, at least in part, driven by stories of the lost cities of gold, whether they were called Cibola or El Dorado or whatever the name, um, the vision was always the same, right? This this untold wealth that was just hiding just around the corner. And while the Spaniards found little of value, the Plains people who encountered them were introduced to their own vision of power, their own stories, horses. Now, change was slow, took over the next 200 years or so, um, where the Spanish had limited contract, contact with Plains people. So horses kind of trickled into the region. But after mm-hmm. 1680, uh, they were increasingly present. Like, you just sort of saw them everywhere. And horses were quickly adopted by the people who had the most contact with the Spanish, right? This makes sense. And these people were the the uh, Carechos or Apache. Uh, no, way before that. The Carechos or Apache in Texas. Okay. And, and then, Pueblo, then Pueblo groups in New Mexico. Now, in the in the Western Plains, and again, like Colorado is the Western Plains. I mean, we're just sort of talking plains, right? Colorado is the Western Plains. Horses, more than firearms, um, transformed the Plains region. So in like the Northeast, uh, indigenous people adopted firearms very quickly because the woodlands there, like they hunted deer and bear and things like that. And firearms gave them an opportunity to like hunt from 
you know, from undercover in the woodlands to hunt things like bear. It was, it was useful as a practical tool for plains people. They hunted bison and bison were more easily, well, they were more easily hunted with like a short bow and arrow rather than the slow loading and incredibly unreliable guns. Right. Which as soon as you fire one, first off, yeah, well, more, it would have been more like arquebuses, um, even at this point. So even before, even before like your standard, uh, your standard musket, this was, uh, you get arquebuses, which were, you know, even less reliable, even slower. And, uh, just, you know, you have to sort of set them up on like a, on like a, a, a Y stick, you know, you've got it holding the end and you fire this thing. Um, you know, you fire this thing. If you miss the whole herd is gone. Yeah. They had to, before horses, they would sort of creep onto the plains, hiding in the grasses, pop up and shoot bows and arrows. But of course, you start to keep your distance because uh, stampeding buffalo or bison, as it turns out, you know, they'll, they'll kill your ass. So, uh, yeah, but horses allow them to kind of outrun the bison and hunt from horseback. And so they transform the region, right? And it was transportation. It was their first mode of transportation. Yeah. That's their yeah. feet. Their, their a, moccasins. A sci- they kicked a, off the moccasin. Get on the horse. Like how, That's right. I love, the, I love he just breaks into song. Like, I know. <laughs> you know. Just uh, in the middle, just for why not? <laughs> um, so horses, uh, horses also transform the power dynamics of the region. They allow the Carecho or the Apache to hunt a surplus of bison to trade with more settled groups like the Wichita's and the Pawnees for things like beans, squash, and maize. Because they had, they were horticulturalists. They had gardens. The Spanish increased demand for human capital as they, you know, wanted to buy slaves. And Carachos and horseback could sort of raid communities and and capture slaves. Again, trading in order to trade for goods, right? Uh, trading for horses, and you know, they they also stole a hell of a lot of horses. Um, you stole it. Not exactly. You stole no, my car. My life. I, I knew you stole it. I did not you steal stole your my car. car. And then you rented a car. And then you burned it up. Again, different understandings of of property rights. That's for sure. Anyway, uh, so uh, Wichita's and Pawnees, who were then trading, you know, squash and beans and maize and things like that in exchange for bison, uh, start growing more and more. Of, from the garden and doing less hunting, right? So it, it changes the whole dynamic of everything because like you have one group riding on horseback who are able to hunt more bison in order to trade them. You know, other groups can then start to specialize more and more in like, say, like I said, growing vegetables or, or making moccasins or whatever, whatever other trade goods. Yep. So it changes the whole dynamic. Uh, now native groups in the area called Europeans spiders uh really they're encountering mostly spanish and french at this point and they refer to them as spiders um not with the negative connotation that we kind of have they really were implying their cleverness and ability to make marvelous things um because you know uh europeans came with things like metal fish hooks muslin cloth not, not yeah. like in a uh goodfellas like get me a drink spider mm-hmm. not like no, that not spider. like not like that Okay. They brought they brought these things that 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 made life um, more efficient. Metal scrapers, uh, iron pots, metal awls. Yeah. All these things increased indigenous efficiency. They still do today, right? Yep. And so, um, <laughs> right. Except, well, I mean, you know, compared to like where they would use like uh, they would use like a, a scapular bone to scrape skins, right? They use like a bison Ooh. scapula to scrape skins. Well, all of a sudden now you Love have it. an iron. You have like a metal scraper. 
and like it lasts longer. It's you know it's, it's going to do the job quicker. It's it's more efficient. And that's and so, how they started scalping people. They they learned that from the Dutch. Um, Did they? Yeah. Oh, the Dutch shit. Uh, I never the, did the, that. Dutch showed up and scout people, and they were like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and then they were like, "Oh, okay, this is the way we. Like, I guess this, is, this is the way we do things now." Yeah, they're like, "This is fucked up. This is how we're punishing our enemies." <laughs> oh, oh, I guess that's how you send a message. Well, we'll send the same message back. <laughs> All of a sudden, you see like hair hair peach shops just sprouting up everywhere in the mm-hmm. community. It's not so, a barbershop. We sell hair pieces here. Selling hair pieces. Yeah. I shouldn't say that so matter of factly, but I, I there there is a, there is some there is some uh some debate about that, but about whether or not it was a practice that existed um before European arrival. And and there the evidence that it that it existed before Europeans is scant. Um but yeah, we know that the Dutch did it. And then we see a, a rather significant inf- increase in, like, you know, skulls and stuff that have tool marks on them that, you know, mm-hmm. indicate scalping. So, again, uh, I, I don't want to say the Dutch are, are, like, completely to blame necessarily, but uh, but probably. They're probably to blame. Yeah. Assholes. You don't like the Dutch. This is, like, the second time you've gone in on them. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures. And the Dutch. The Dutch. Uh, well, first off, you know the, you the, call the them Dutch, like German rejects. The, one of your previous episodes. The Dutch something. are uh, the, <laughs> the the Dutch are weird. Um, they have a great island. Aruba's Dutch owned. It's a wonderful, have, wonderful. Well, first off, do you guys know, like the Dutch are humongous for one thing. Like, <laughs> uh, do you know this? Like the Dutch are huge. Wait, hold on. First of all, like how the big are you again? Huh? Like Swedes. How big are you again? I'm six like, two. That's what I mean. You're calling other people humongous. Right. I'm 6'2", <laughs> which would make me average height in the Netherlands. 6'2", <laughs> is the average is male height. Yeah. They in the United, States the, average, in the United States, the average is like 5'9". Five, five, and, yeah. and in Amsterdam, it's 6'2". They, they're giants. Two. They are Holy humo- yeah, mackerel. Yeah, they are. Um, they're Dolph they're Lundgren's walking around. They're freaks. It's amazing. You know, you uh, they're the only they're the only ones that are going to survive uh, the climate apocalypse because if there's anybody that knows how to fend off the sea, it's the Dutch. I mean, they've been doing it for like you know a thousand years. They're like, well, we we'll just build another do- another dike here, and you know, and that's what they do. The Dutch. I can give us a Dutch. Dutch person if you want so a Dutch, Dutch person. Fucking- Dutch person. I'll get you a Dutch person on this call if you want one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll probably be in trouble if I keep that up. Then, well, oh, with, with uh, Marcel so, for sure. So far, so far, <laughs> zero listeners in the Netherlands. So, so if so, uh, so if somebody from the Netherlands does listen to this, welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah, he's he's gonna. Oh yeah, there we go. All right. Man, okay, man. See, yeah, I, this is this is going to take nine hours to get through this. Script. <laughs> <laughs> We're on page one now. And he's the and he's the one that's going to go. I'm tired. I need oh, to sleep. No, that's no, why this I'm is done. why I, I, this what? this is why I forced us to do Saturday nights because that that's exactly what I was doing every other time we record. You know what he I mean, does? He just turns oh, off all the he just turns <laughs> off all the lights, and I'm like, "Are you awake? What what is going on?" <laughs> oh yeah, I'm here. I'm here. There's, there's been some episodes I was literally sleeping at the end. Yeah. Not you're, no you're more. Bad. You're bad. Okay. Friend. 
So <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna like this. Okay. So uh, we're okay. So the the efficiency thing. So even uh, even indigenous groups that try to like avoid the spiders found themselves kind of caught in their webs to a greater or lesser degree. So found this example of this Kiowa leader named uh, White Bear, who was one of those who fiercely resisted white encroachment into their lands. But at the same time, he lived in a carpeted teepee with a painted wooden table that was decorated with brass tacks. And he would walk out of his lodge and blow a French horn to call people uh, to call people for meetings. And then he would serve coffee. So like, so dude's like, not want any white encroachment. I do like the carpet, however, and also the the painted wooden table with the brass tacks. That's nice. And that French horn, <laughs> that French horn is fantastic. Oh, and I can't have, I can't live without my coffee. Like those things are fine, but no more white encroachment. I yeah, had this little vision of brass tacks, like with the points up, and I'm like, oh the yeah, fuck we want that. <laughs> Maybe yeah. like it's, it's torture, it's I need to put table. the whiskey down. Clearly, that's, that's what these. <laughs> 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 yeah right so uh this okay this 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 guy this clown this clown what clown what do you what do you clown uh, all right here so obviously horses are not like other tools right uh a knife and all or an iron pot they all serve as an extension of one's personal effort right one's own effort uh energy but a horse was energy captured and then applied to a person's specific purposes, right? It's a net gain in energy and power. And now for indigenous people, dogs served a similar role, um, but dogs were carnivores. So they subtracted from the kind of meat energy available to the group, right? You had to feed them, right? They had to get some of your, some of your bison. Um, although, you know, in, during the winter, a lot of times, like some of the dogs would end up being eaten as well. It was sort of, so they'd give some of that energy back. But, um, but anyway, it was a, you know, the relationship was, was, what was like for, that? I'm waiting for Mike to sing the circle of life. I, I don't know I, what he's doing. <laughs> he's, I was just going to say, um, you, you were mentioned about eating the dogs. I was going to have a comment that was definitely going to get eat, uh, edited out, but I decided not today. <laughs> okay. So you already, you already did the cat episode. You can keep going. Yes. <laughs> that's a great story. Um, that's a great story. And I'm sorry. I didn't get nearly enough, as much love for that title of that that uh, little bonus episode as I should have. I you mean, a, ta- me. a tale of Parisian <laughs> pussyguettas? That is fantastic. I have a okay. friend that actually I was telling him about this podcast. Yeah. And he looked it up and saw that title. He goes, well, I have to listen to this one at least. <laughs> like, so, no, it, it's gotten attraction more than you may realize. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I was like, come on. That's, I mean, you know, it's, it's a completely innocuous story, but I love, I, I was like, I really like that. I'm really proud of myself for this title. Uh, <laughs> I, I get, I giggled for like 20 minutes after I posted it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. So, um, so, I mean, dogs obviously then are like a drain on group resources, whereas horses were fueled by a rather plentiful resource that indigenous people didn't otherwise use, the grasses that were just there, right? Grass. So so they're this like huge energy boost. They're this power boost, and they don't require any extra effort, you know, like, like, a, like a dog does. So the horse is like a great leap forward, right? A power harnessed by people greater than anything that the planes had ever seen. I mean, bison are powerful or whatever, but you can't harness that power, right? Obviously not this, not in the same way you can only, their own. you can only consume it. 
Right. So horses also transform the mind. And this is something I found really interesting. They honestly did not know before I started working on this uh, episode. Uh, every, every culture that we know of that has adopted the horse, you know, mm-hmm. riding horse riding or whatever, mm-hmm. experiences a kind of spiritual transformation in the culture. There's something about riding horses that, that seems to fundamentally alter the human mind. Like ancient limits of what is possible for human beings are like catapulted forward when they adopt horses into their culture. It's uh, it's like an image of liberation, of freedom, seizes the mind and, and makes new things seem possible that never were. So um, horses kind of create in the human, human mind a, a fusion between uh, a theological, a physical and a sexual power, like all sort of merged into one kind of thing. So just as a couple of examples. Christ in judgment is going to appear on a mare. Vishnu will appear on a white horse. Uh, Odin rides through the sky on the back of an eight-legged horse named Sleipner. Barak, the heavenly horse, was who carried the prophet Muhammad to heaven. Uh, in the 12th century, Irish kings would ritually copulate with a newly slain mare, bathe in and drink a soup made from its carcass as part of their, uh, their ritual of establishing their power. Genghis Khan and his white horse were deified and are now associated with what's called the Sol de Tingre, which is the highest group of deities in Mongolian shamanism and in Buddhism. So horses do something to people. Hell yeah. Like in a, fucking, in a way that like nothing else does. Yeah, yeah, go. go. There's the triple crown. I love it. And huh. Preakness and the Derby. And fucking if you win all three, it really does something to your wallet. It does because then you get to stud them. Indeed. And they all become studs. In and you uh, get so uh, off their big big cups of their nut for like millions of dollars. For, you know, he's talking about studs and this deep breathing that's going along with it is making him really uncomfortable. <laughs> while, he's, while he's in the dark, I know, I know. It's, it's, it's like, well, it is going on right we don't now. have we don't have the budget for sound effects so. <laughs> oh you're doing just fine by again. yourself sir <laughs> <laughs> so uh okay so in the plains this adopting horses um it is powerful enough that it breaks patterns of life that were like twenty five thousand generations old i mean it's a big deal horses and other trade goods help create a mass migration of people into the region as well Wichita's and Pawnees were put, like pushed west, uh, encouraged by French traders operating along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. Um, incidentally, just a little side note, in the early 18th century, uh, this guy Etienne de Vignard, the Sieur de Bourgmont, took 10 volunteers from various Plains tribes first to New Orleans, and then he took four of them to Paris, where they were celebrated by a then 15-year-old Louis XV at his royal court. They, like... Yeah, they re- like regaled their admirers with their hunting skills. They k- killed numerous peacocks with their bows and arrows. Uh, they were treated as celebrities at the Parisian Opera. And after two years, these four uh, these four people were escorted home as three men and a woman. And when they got back, like as their groups moved westward, they would tell tales around the campfire, uh, around the campfire, and things like that. And among their many topics of conversation was that the court women in Paris at the Chateau de Fontainebleau. Smelled like alligators. Oh, I um, heard that about that place. Think, and, and could you imagine? Can, can could you we imagine qualify sit- that? What does alligators smell like? 
Because oh, no I have no idea. No clue. <laughs> but but I would ask you that. But you could do this. Ask ask your spouse. Would she like to be described as smelling of alligator? Oh. I mean, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they smell the wonderful. I I think that I think that my spouse would say if I said, "Oh, baby, you really smell like alligator tonight." And I live in Florida, where that some people that could work for. I think my thoughts would be displeased. I think is the, <laughs> is the best way I'll say that. So um, I just love that that was the way they described these women. They they're like, oh man, they all smell like alligators. It's yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah. You know, the French women have a reputation like that. Um, <laughs> That's what they always know, say about French women. Yeah. Hey, I, and could you imagine Aroma hanging out with that alligator. guy? That guy Louie and being like, look, hundreds of years from now, people are going to be paying a lot of money for your bourbon. It's going to be sitting up on the top of bars like in a bottle. No it's, one will uh, ever do it. It's going to be super, super expensive. Louis fifteen? Is it Louis the fifteenth? I thought it was Louis Couture. Is it Louis Couture? I don't know which one, but one of them's like super, super. I thought expensive. it was this. I thought it was the Sun King myself. <clears throat> that's. Uh, I've never had either, so I don't know. Louis uh, Louis fifteen was uh, was the boy king. <clears throat> None of this are, we in the, was like, are we in the bathroom like, right now? I just prob- want to know. Like, <laughs> probably, probably. Um, <laughs> Who are you talking about me? <laughs> yeah, I'm in my like, office. I'm in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Where you get your best thinking done? Right. <laughs> uh, I'm always in the office. This is my office. This is. We re- we are going to be doing this till two o'clock this morning. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to shrink these down to like three page scripts. <laughs> Um, <laughs> some stuff happened. This is when it happened. What do you guys think? Uh, <laughs> it was right. go too long. I know. All right. So at at roughly the same time that Wichita's and Pawnees were moving west, um, Shoshone speakers migrated south from Wyoming and like northern Colorado into the Rio Grande Valley, and they formed a military alliance with Utes, who called them Comancia or Comanches. Um, the two what? The two what? I was waiting for that reference. Is it possible the two Utes? The uh, uh, two what? Uh, uh, what was that word? Uh, what word? Two what? What? Did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two Utes. I literally was waiting for this. The two what? You might have been wrong, Brian. You might have got two mics, not two Brian's. The two what? Two Utes. The two Utes. (laughs) So, good God. Uh, uh, All right, go ahead. I got to rethink some things. Um, (laughs) The two Utes. The two (laughs) what? Call them Comanche or Comanches. Uh, But the Comanche, these Comanche or whatever, they called themselves Numinu, which doesn't really matter much because nobody knows them as the Numinu, which is, you know, they just get called what the Utes called them. The Utes. <laughs> with, what? With, with, God. Within a generation, uh, the Comanches incorporated horses stolen and traded from New Mexico, uh, from the New Mexico Pueblos. And by mid-century, less than 50 years after their arrival, Comanches had transformed into the most legendary and feared horseback warriors of the entire Plains region. 
By the early 1800s, they thoroughly dominated the area from the Arkansas Valley all the way to the Texas Hill Country. And it was reported that they stole upwards of 10,000 horses a year from the Spanish, which I don't know much about horses. I'm not like a horse, not like a horse guy, but 10,000 sounds like a lot. I I mean, it seems like like a lot of horses. I I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure what the scale is there, but it's, it's more than, it's more than you accidentally carry out in your pockets. Um, you know, that's, that's all I know. It's not, you can't just be like, oh man, I put that in my pocket. I completely forgot I had that there. <laughs> There's 10,000 of them. Uh, a few hundred miles north of Comanche territory, there was another great migration reshaping the plains there. Between the 1680s and 1830s, several related but independent groups pushed west and south from the Missouri Valley. They were collectively called the Western Sioux <clears throat> and were broadly made up of Nakota and Lakota bands uh, that were then subdivided into individual tribes. They acknowledged their kind of kinship with one another, but they had no politi- uh, centralized political structure or leadership. They spoke closely related dialects and had numerous shared traditions. But again, all the bands kind of are, are independent. Um, mm-hmm. They arrived really well supplied with firearms from the French because they pushed in from that Missouri Valley where the French traders where French traders had been operating. And honestly, they were kind of pushed out by Ojibwe and Cree, but they were attracted to the numerous beavers and bison in the Western Great Lakes region uh, around like Minnesota. (laughs) So there's like a push and pull factor, right? Sorry, I'm going to, I didn't even hear you because I was, I got a frog in my throat all of a sudden. Um, Anyway, sometime in the late mid, uh, the mid to late 18th century, they acquired horses and these Western Sioux asserted control over the region, assisted in part by the spread of disease, um, from the Missouri to the Yellowstone, uh, the, the Sioux would sort of control that whole region. Uh, from there, as white settlers and uh, traders encroached on their land, some bands pushed west and south into the plains and disrupted the patterns of life and encroached on the hunting grounds of nomadic groups like the Arapaho, the Arapaho, the Kiowas, Crows, and Cheyennes. So as they sought to dominate the area between Missouri and the Black Hills, which was a place of sacred significance for the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, and the Sioux alike. To maintain their newly established dominance, the Sioux expanded their horse herds, but unlike the Comanche to the south, the Sioux faced two problems. Number one, being farther up in the plains, the harsh winters would thin their herds uh, by spring each year. And number two, they lacked access to the easiest source of horse replenishment, the horse-rich Spanish outposts that you could apparently rob blind with no problem. Uh, in Nueva España. So despite that, by the 1830s, uh, the Lakota Sioux in particular had established themselves as the preeminent power in the Northern Plains. All right. These changes impacted other groups. Obviously, the Kiowa left Montana and moved south, where they encountered horses and allied with the Crow. Lakota expansion pushed them even further south, where they made a long-lasting peace with Comanches and then settled along the upper Arkansas River. Uh, the Arapahoes, who had been farmers in northwest Minnesota, get caught up in battles for control over the Black Hills before yeah. eventually they get pushed southward. They form a durable alliance with Cheyennes. And by the 1820s, they settled along the North Platte, which I think is getting closer to what the areas that you know pretty well, Garrick, right? Go along the North Platte and all that. Um, I used to live right along it. Yeah. ranging. Uh, so they range sort of between the North and South Platts in and around Colorado. By the early, you know, by, by the 1820s. So by the early 19th century, um, the Cheyenne and Arapaho were now skilled horsemen, and they controlled the territory 
that range basically from present day Casper, Wyoming to, to like just, uh, just around, uh, Trinidad, Colorado in the South. If you know where Trinidad is, I'm not sure. Um, change capital of the U S yes. Oh, is it? Ooh. It's <laughs> I did not know that. Plast- it was where the plastic surgery first was born, if you will. Interesting. Course, yeah, changes, I, and then he moved his practice out to LA, of course. But of course, yeah, it all started in Trinidad. There's that. That's one of the first things you hear when you move here. Is that whole ooh sex change capital of the U.S. Interesting. <laughs> oh. I did not know that. Yeah. So that's well. That's that's interesting. So so the Arapaho and Cheyenne control basically from Casper, Wyoming, down to Trinidad, and then they control pretty much all the way to the to the Rockies. Nobody controls over the Rockies because you know. I think you could probably make an argument that even today nobody controls over the Rockies. Um, you know, you you could if you could survive it, you could just set up camp and live there. You know, live there off the grid, uh, DB Cooper style. As a anyway, <laughs> you know, with your with your buckets, uh, with your your uh, your briefcases of money, and going, man, I I didn't think this plan through. <laughs> That's funny shit. <laughs> anyway, so the, Poor DB. The, yeah. The uh, the Arapaho and Cheyenne controlled uh, probably forty percent or so of of present day Colorado, and basically everything east of the Rockies. Uh, their control extended into Kansas and Nebraska. Um, so, all right, so we're twenty five hundred words into this thing, and we've essentially set up the background, the background <laughs> for the first part of our story. Okay, <laughs> so are you, are you guys ready to start? <laughs> Should I? Welcome to Unbound Tunes of History. I'm Brian. No. Uh, let's do some history now. All right. uh, okay, look, I know it's a lot of background, but I kind of think it's really important to understand this area as a place in flux. And so instead of me just saying it, I wanted to kind of explain sure. some of the processes. Um, anyway, uh, we can't really understand the events that we're about to talk about without understanding that historical backdrop of the plains and how Colorado fits into that um, as a kind of land. Uh, you know, again, like I said, in flux. But by the 1820s had really pretty much settled into a, into real stable patterns of life before the next wave of immigrants, this time Euro-Americans, would sweep across the plains seeking to kind of tell their own stories about place and belonging. And I kind of wanted to give some special attention to this, at least in part, because I think a lot of times when we do hear the story of uh, settling the West, it's like the story begins when Americans start moving westward. Right. And it's like, but there are these people have been there. They have their own histories for a long time. And it has been, you know, like it's been a contested place and people have settled into a certain pattern of existence over time. Right. Like, I think it's worth we should acknowledge that and talk about it because I think it's important and helps explain what happens next as well. Okay, so let's set up the Euro-American story kind of as rapidly as possible. Um, And this is we're going to get into this is where we're going to start to get into some of the little the little minor ugliness of uh, of uh, of the past. Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. And uh, in 1823, the, the country prohibited the sale of slaves and required children of slaves to be freed when they turned 14. Now, Stephen F. Austin's colony in Texas largely ignored this Uh, in 1827. Mexico banned the importation of any new slaves and granted freedom to any children born of enslaved parents. In 1829, Mexico banned slavery throughout the country. Though, what are you doing, Mike? Oh, wow. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I have to, I have to silence all I mean, of that later on. God damn. Look at, sorry, sorry, sorry. Look at the chat. <laughs> it's like it's, uh, yeah. Lots of briefing. 
Um, Mike, if you lift your boom mic just up above your above your nose, then you won't get the breathing, but you'll still get the audio. There we go. I think that's all Wait, it is. It's just it's Mike got just... that direct line of sight to the. I'm like, man, you're making me uncomfortable over here. Thank God. It's Dylan, Mike, check. Well, I, I keep thinking is like, I've got to, I've got to just like silence all of this. I've got to go back and silence all of this. Um, I see. I see. Anyway, you. all right. So, I see all right. So, so the point is, so by 1829, right? Like Mexico has taken steps to try and eliminate slavery in this in its country. Uh, you know, in, 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 with varying steps, like progressively trying to, you know, again, so you don't stop it all at once. You, you try to make it uh, a reasonable progression or whatever. Um, even when they banned slavery throughout the country in 1829, they made a temporary exception for Texas because New Texas was all like expat Americans who came over there specifically bringing slaves. So they made the exception for Texas, giving them until 1830 to resolve the slavery issue. And what year was this? 1830. Mexico no, banned. Year, banned what year was this? Uh, they gave until 1830. But yeah, what year is 18, this you're talking about? 1829, they banned slavery. No, look, they made, they've been progressively doing this. In 1830, 30, 23, they prohibited the sale of slaves and they required all children born of slaves to be freed at 14. In 1827, right. they banned importing any new slaves and granted freedom to any children born to enslaved parents. And then gotcha. two years later in 1829, they banned slavery altogether. Again, making an exception only for Texas, giving them until 1830, giving them a year to resolve the issue. So, like, look, slavery is going to be outlawed. It's outlawed everywhere, but you've got a year to figure it out, like, to, you know, to give these people freedom and figure it out. Anglo holders basically forced their slaves uh, to sign lifetime indentured servitude contracts um, to pay off the debts that they owed for their enslavement. Uh-huh. And so then they would just pay them extremely low wages. That would make payment of those debts impossible in a lifetime. Then they would enforce the debt as inheritable to their children. Oh my so goodness. their children would be then forced to be sl- to be indentured servants for life to pay off the debt. Um, and then, of course, they refused to pay even the meager wages uh, that they were offering until a slave was 18. So they made the children work off the debt until they were 18 for free. Then they would pay. They, that was, you know, so so this is what how Texas uh, Anglos you know, Americans in Texas decided <laughs> to handle the situation. Uh, the Texas Revolution started in 1835 when basically the Spanish, I mean, where the Mexicans rather, and, and admittedly, like it's a new government. They are weak. Uh, they have problems. Santa Ana kind of takes power as a, as a dictator, but like that always has a really negative connotation. There, there is something to be said for like Santa Ana's coming in when he did, uh, he saw himself as a bit of a Napoleon figure, like things were in a bit of chaos and he was trying to assert, you know, some rule of law into the country mm-hmm. for better or for worse. I mean, he, he also did awful things, but like, you know, whatever, you've got a country that's essentially in civil war and you're trying to maintain your independence and nothing's really been established yet. It's complicated that these things happen. So anyway, so the Texas Revolution starts in 1835 when Santa Ana is like, look, like you've got to follow the law up there in Texas. And they didn't really want war with Texas. They really were trying to sort of, because they, they understood, or they didn't want war with the United States. So anything they did involving Texas, they were hoping to resolve locally and internally. Anyway, uh, the Revo- Texas Revolution ended, which, by the way, again, was all about Texas being free to keep having slaves. That's why the war mm-hmm. was fought. It ended when they captured Santa Ana and forced him... That. 
Say again? I, was, I, I was in high school in Texas. They didn't teach me that in Texas history. I can't imagine why. Um, <laughs> yeah, remember the Alamo was fought to preserve slavery. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the Texas Revolution, uh, I'm sorry, when it ended when Santa Ana was forced to sign a treaty, uh, and as part of the treaty, uh, it named the southern border of the sort of independent state of Texas to be the Rio Grande. Now, the problem with the Rio Grande uh, as the southern border is that that's not what it's called in Mexico. The Rio Grande, as it's called in Texas, is called the Rio Bravo in Mexico. Um, wow. And so the, the, Mexican, the Mexican government rejected the legitimacy of the treaty on the grounds that, A, Santa Ana was like held under duress, imprisoned, uh, like at gunpoint and forced to sign this treaty. So that's a problem. And secondly, the Rio Grande and the, is not the Rio Bravo, but the Rio Nueces. And so Mexico acknowledged Texas independence and the southern border at the at the, the Nueces River boundary. Now, this border was pretty much accepted on both sides, even if begrudgingly. Until 18, until after 1844, like both sides pretty much accepted this. And then James Polk became the president of the United States and said, the Rio Grande is the southern border. And he, um, he did, they, they wanted to annex Texas. They did annex ex Texas. Um, now I want to just real quick before I get into the annexation of Texas, real quick, the Republic of Texas, <clears throat> by the way, once they established the government, the first thing they did was they made slavery legal again and they wrote a constitution. And in the Texas constitution, they declared, that Congress was not allowed to free Congress of Texas was not allowed to free slaves. Slave owners were not allowed to free their slaves without first petitioning Congress and then getting explicit authority from Congress to do so. So the majority of Congress had to agree that a slave owner could free their own slaves. Africans and the descendants of Africans and Indians were all excluded from the class, quote, the class of quote persons, uh, and therefore had no right to vote. Uh, and they had no, no, had no rights to own property or to vote. And any free people of African descent had to leave Texas or they could make a, an in-person petition to Congress for a special permission to continue living there. But, uh, but they had to like go in person to beg for permission to stay in Texas if they were already a free person of color. Person who was one eighth African descent, that is one great grandparent, were barred from owning property, from voting or intermarrying with whites or testifying against whites in court although the other the reverse is not the case so mm -hmm. i just want to make clear when people celebrate the republic of texas they're <laughs> celebrating an unbridled white supremacist state a state established on the foundation of white supremacy in every possible imaginable way and in the oh, way you just described on. it the way you just described it also was the first pyramid scheme because yeah. <laughs> Congress was essentially running the slave owners the way the slave owners were running the slaves. And Congress was most was all made up of slave owners. So it was like a yeah, there's a <laughs> sure. it's it's the it's the bourgeois and the petty bourgeois <laughs> and an enslaved proletarian. Is that <laughs> there you go. You got your bougie. Thank you. Um, Appreciate it. Bourgeois. So the uh, the contested border of the <laughs> of the Rio Grande and the Rio Nueces becomes an issue after James K. Polk was elected president in 1844. In 1845, once he's in office, he sent troops into that contested region between the rivers uh, that was you know essentially claimed by both countries. Though everyone kind of acknowledged 
that it was the northern border was the correct one. He sent American troops into that contested area. And he basically sent a, a small force in order to stir up trouble. He also unofficially backed federally commissioned explorer John Fremont to raise a, an expeditionary force in Alta, California, which was part of Mexico, that same year. The U.S. tried to annex Texas. The resolution failed. They tried again. But they, when they tried to annex Texas the second time, Congress removed the Rio Grande border from the treaty, and then Texas was annexed. So, okay, so, so understand. Congress right. annexed the state of Texas into the United States after they specifically removed the Rio Grande border from the, from the, from the, the document. So, okay, Congress understood the border. Polk was like, fuck all that noise. <laughs> We're doing it anyway. So uh, new, the, on December 29th, uh, 1845, Texas was admitted as a state. And in April 1846, a large Mexican force sought to remove those 80 or so guards that Polk sent down from the, the, from the Rio Grande border. Somewhere between the two shots were fired. 18 Americans were killed and 52 captured. Polk had offered $25 million to buy the disputed territory between the rivers California and New Mexico, but Mexico had rejected it. So Polk used this, this, this uh, when these troops get into this skirmish, it was called the Thornton Affair. He uses this to push for war. <clears throat> and he claims very publicly, American blood had been spilled on American soil in order to rally people to support a war. Now, this one congressman, um, his name's, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, Abraham Lincoln, Oh, I don't know. Uh, it sounds really voice, familiar. I feel, I feel like I've Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. That's it. Abraham Lincoln. This one Abe. congressman, I, he, I feel like I've heard of him before. Uh, he referred yeah. to this, this claim he that be, he'd never uh, be important. <laughs> you can forget him immediately after this. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he referred to Polk's claim that American blood was spilled on American soil. He called it quote, a ball. I'm sorry. A bold falsification of history. End quote. Uh, meanwhile, Polk, Santa Anna, by the way, because he had led a coup uh, and become dictator, um, did some brutality, was arrested and was exiled to Cuba. Polk, same time, secretly bribed Santa Anna uh, in Cuba to return to Mexico, bribed him with with uh, two million dollars. Nice. If he would if he would go Wait. back. So Jesus, two million then. Two million yeah. then. If he'd go That's back a to lot Mexico. Of Hold on, go back to Mexico, seize control, and then negotiate this board, like cede the border between the Rio Grande and the Nueces. So he's, Polk is secretly in, like doing this bribe. <clears throat> Santa Ana goes back to Mexico, is able to go back to Mexico because there's no real uh, experienced military leaders and they know conflict with the U.S. is coming. So he goes back, he takes the $2 million, and as soon as he gets back in Mexico, he goes, Fuck you, United States. He goes, he goes right to Vegas. And he goes right, no, he goes right to the press and he's like, these suckers thought they could bribe me. I will never betray my country. But he kept the money. Nice. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, Good I think for so too. Him. Uh, That's he, a ton. He, What's that in today's dollars? Two million and. Probably, two, probably close to 200. Oh my God. Good yeah, for him. Like, um, yeah, he, it was a lot. Good now, for him. That in ways, this is where Corpus Christi is today. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Like it just tells you. I mean, if you think about where that is on the map, I mean, there's probably a couple hundred miles beyond that. that sure. Is Texas now. Sure. So, so uh, 
as you might imagine, there was significant opposition to the war in the United States, right? Like Polk has Congress declare war. Um, the Congress, I mean, he, he's president's in power. The, his party's in power. He's Democrat, Democratic Party's in power, uh, mostly Southern Democrats. Um, Link was a Whig at the time, lest you think that this is a Republican hero story. Um, Frederick Douglass, one of the uh, one of the people that, that was really outspoken was Frederick Douglass, who challenged people to refuse paying taxes, uh, the, the refuse paying taxes because the taxes were what supported the war. Now, you might have, I assume you guys have heard of Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau, uh, Thoreau refused. He he took this to heart and he refused to pay poll taxes. Uh, and he was jailed. He it was actually kind of a funny story. Like he had some friends like immediately try to bail him out. And he's like, no, stop. And then other friends like bailed him out from afar. He didn't communicate with him. He's like, I just want to like, I'm trying to be here for like a reason, but they bailed him out. Um, but as soon as he got out, he wrote uh, one of his most famous works, something called on civil disobedience, a thing that every American should like mandatorily have to read. Um, Cause he sort of describes like, when you should take a moral stand against your government, when your government has done immoral things in your name with your money. And he wrote in civil, on civil disobedience about this uh, in order to try and encourage others to do the same. Uh, Catholic American soldiers in the war actually defected to Mexico after witnessing the horrific behavior of American troops there, including uh, the desecration of Catholic churches. One of the things, and this is kind of quaint when you think about it, one of the things that immediately actually really upset them was like the the American army, like the cavalry, would stable their horses in the churches. And so like Catholics were like, my God, like that's the body and blood of Christ in there. And you're like stabling horses in there. Like it's so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like oh, really, God. so dis. It's like again. I mean, I get it. Super disrespectful. So, so all these Catholics uh, defected, especially Irish Catholics, and a number of Irish Catholic soldiers, <clears throat> led by a guy named John Riley, fought under the banner Los San Patricios. Uh, a number of these Los soldiers. Pepes. Well, the this the the banner of Saint Patrick. Uh-huh. Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Donde esta la biblioteca? Me llamo Tibón, la araña discoteca. Discoteca, muñeca, la biblioteca. Es un bigote grande, pero manteca. Manteca, bigote, gigante, pequeño. Cabeza es nieve, cerveza es bueno. Buenos días, me gustas papas frías. Bigote de la cabra, es camarón Díaz. Yeah, boy, boy. Donde esta la biblioteca? Um... A number of these soldiers were captured uh, at the Battle of Churubusco, and the military code. You okay, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) The uh, God. <laughs> what are you doing to that counter, man? <laughs> Good Lord, man. Uh, All right. So <clears throat> the military code for punishment of uh of, I can't I can't read this while you're laughing over it. It's just I gotta wait. It's this does not make sense. Is this the waterboarding yeah. part? No, 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 no. Water Good. cure. They don't figure out the water cure for another 40 or 50 years. They do that in the 30s. Oh. 
It's so effective. The uh, I can't, I can't, I can't let it go. I gotta let that go. I gotta let that go. I gotta let that go. Um, the uh, the uh, <laughs> one thing we've learned over time is that torture always works. It always yields a result. An yeah, an yeah. <laughs> it gives you an answer. People will say anything to make the pain stop. It doesn't have to be true. Surprisingly, you're right. They who was I? Who was I? Who was I working with? I'll give you names. Hey, it's better than nothing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I hope we can be so cavalier when the purge comes for us. I like that movie. <laughs> so, uh, all right, round up, the, round up the bourgeois white guys. Let's torture them. They'll give us names. Mike, Mike, Derek. Um, <laughs> Mike's the one. Mike's the one. He's, he's the one you want. He's the chief of staff, for God's sakes. Chief. Um, <laughs> anyway, all right. So, all right. So, these Irish, these Irish uh, American soldiers are captured, and the military code for punishing deserters before a war is declared was branding on the hip uh, with ink, fifty lashes, or Hard labor. One of those three things. Hold on, hold on. Branding, 50 lashes, or hard labor? Yeah, branding with ink. Branding with ink. With ink. So, not yeah, with I'm, not sure what, I'm not sure what that means. I feel like it kind of means something like a tattoo. Because they specify yeah. with ink yeah. versus with, like, a hot iron. So I'm like, not really sure what branding with ink is. It seems less severe because branding with hot iron yeah. is something that tends to be for more severe crimes. So I don't I don't know exactly what it means. Except Yeah, if they're threatening me with a tattoo, then I'll just get inked up, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's maybe, a t- I think it is branding with ink, but I don't think it's like, I don't think it's as severe. And it's also on the hip. This is, uh, okay. It's so, not pleasant. It's probably not it's pleasant. Yeah, none of them stamp. are good. I mean, none of these things are good. Is that the tramp stamp? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, now, deserters who, who deserted after war was declared, uh, the punishment was death by firing squad. Now, of these men who were captured, these Irish-American, you know, under the Battle of uh, Los San Patricios, uh, 48 were sentenced to death by hanging. Oh. Death by hanging was reserved for criminals and for spies. Soldiers okay. get death by firing squad. So oh, nice. this is already like a violation of the military code and intended to humiliate, right? Not just punish. Now, 18 of these men were hanged pretty quickly. Um and the other people who were deserted before the declaration of war, they were branded with a D on their cheek, not their hip. They were lashed far more than 50 times, uh, quote, until their backs had the appearance of raw beef, the blood oozing from every stripe, end quote. Ew. And they were imprisoned to do hard labor. So while you're supposed to get one of the three punishments, they got all three, and instead of the branding on the hip, they got it on the cheek, which, again, you could just imagine their future, their future lives with a big D for deserter on their cheek, uh, as opposed to the one on their hip that you could, you know, hide. Yeah, yeah, you can cover okay. that up. Right, right. For the other 30 that were not executed right away, General Winfield Scott, whose nickname is one of the best in American history, old fuss and feathers. Oh, love it. Yeah. He chose Colonel William Harney as the executioner. Now, Harney had twice before been disciplined for insubordination and during, during earlier like wars with uh, different indigenous groups, Harney developed a reputation for taking young Indian girls captive, raping them, 
and then executing oh. them the following morning. What? Uh, he had been disciplined for this, uh, but it was fine. He, you know, got a slap on the wrist and was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he had a reputation for taking girls as young as thirteen. Uh, and and oh. yeah, so that guy he's got. He's get. the now he's the guy who is put in charge of the execution. Mm. Execution. Um, only twenty nine of the men instead of thirty were brought out because the one had had his legs blown off during the battle. Mm-hmm. Harney ordered Francis O'Connor propped up on his bloody stumps and a noose fitted around his neck just with the rest. He actually said something like, by God, I was told to hang 30 and I'll hang 30. Mm-hmm. Or 29 and a half. Right. One man, it's <laughs> <that's> pretty funny. <laughs> one, one man asked for a final pipe smoke. Uh, and, and so somebody offered him a pipe. Uh, but then he asked Harney, who was a redhead, if he would use his elegant hair to light the pipe for him. So, um, <laughs> so he's, he's like, well, if I'm going to die, I'm at least going to make fun of you for being a ginger. Yeah. Yeah, get the ginger <laughs> light, light it up. It's very funny. Uh, Harney responded by shattering the man's teeth with the hilt of his sword. Um, he then made the men stand for four and a half hours with nooses around their necks in the 90 plus degree sun before he finally gave the order to have them hanged. When the U.S. flag was raised over the Chapultepec Castle in the distance. Now, um, this is another thing in the military code is that the death sentence is supposed to be carried out swiftly. Uh, you, you know, this is you're not supposed to make them stand there for four and a half hours with nooses around their neck. Right. Um, that's, again, something you could do for criminals or whatever, but not <laughs> supposed to be uh, military punishment. Nevertheless, that's that's what happened. Of the uh, more than 5000 deserters from the Americans to the Mexicans during the war. Only the Catholics, only the San Patricios were punished. Uh, Anyway, the war ended in 1848. Mexico was far too divided and far too poor, even though Mexico got a loan from the Catholic Church in Rome to try and fight the American invasion. Uh, The loan from the church arrived too late to really help. They couldn't, like, use it to to train and buy new weapons and all that yet. Uh, And frankly, the Mexican army was fighting mostly with, like, Napoleonic-era weapons because... Again, Mm -hmm. new country, no money. Uh, Anyway, every year, the names of 71 Irish soldiers are read aloud in San Angel, where a marble plaque honors the sacrifice of those men. So every year to this day, they still celebrate those guys, those Irish soldiers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Flowers and wreaths adorn the area, and bugles and drums are played in their honor. And in Clifton County, Galway, in Ireland, which is where John Riley was born, they have a similar ceremony every year on September 13th. Uh, which was his birthday. So it's kind of cool like that. You know, these guys are celebrated. I mean, they're not celebrated here, obviously, but they are celebrated in like Mexico and in Ireland every year uh, to down to this day. Uh, Mexico ceded much of the American Southwest to the U.S., West Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, California, even up to parts of Oregon were all given away, uh, ceded in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. The U.S. gained more territory from the Mexican-American War than all other wars, taking about two-thirds of Mexico's territory. The U.S. government under Polk hoped to promote westward settlement and the extension of slavery uh, westward. That was the goal of the southerner and pro-slavery president, Polk. Um, They wanted to extend slavery. They also wanted to push people west in order to create a pressure valve to release like the all the pressure that was being built up from the influx of European immigrants as like 
uh, Native Americans uh, were were like chafing at all of these immigrants coming in. They were mad and fist shaking, like these people aren't real Americans. This is our country. We want these dirty Irish and Italians out of here. Uh, so yeah, opening up the West would sort of release some of that pressure. Chafing um, means something different to me, but that's okay. Yes. <laughs> same chafing. They're undergarments. No, you know. same chafing. They're, they were they were getting their uh, uh, their undies waspy, are not. Waspy Americans had their balls all in a vice over this stuff. Okay, thank you. That's chafing. they were clutching their pearls. <laughs> they were yeah. They're clutching their they were clutching their chafe. Um, <laughs> as luck would have it, in January 1848. Gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in California, kicking off yep. the California gold rush that brought some 300,000 people to California over the next few years. About half of them came by sea and about half across the, the overland. We always call it the Oregon Trail, but there were a bunch of them. Um, so, you know, about 150,000 over several years come to California over the, the plains. San Francisco, for example, was a small settlement of about 200 people in 1846. Six years later, in 1852, it was a boomtown of 36,000. So, yeah. so if you've ever been to Atlanta and be like, what, what would happen if you take a city with like, uh, with like 80,000 people and all of a sudden make it 750,000 over a decade? Like, it's basically the same thing. You know what I mean? It's like you do the same thing to San Francisco. Um, anyway, the California gold rush contributed to the genocides of uh, California indigenous people. And if we had time, we could talk about the absolutely monstrous behavior uh, rightly called no. butchery by contemporary sources of American heroes like John Fremont, the very first Republican presidential candidate in 1856, Kit Carson, and John Sutter of Sutter Mills fame. Um, these guys were monsters that are like American heroes. Uh, but we don't have time for that, so I can only say it and move on. For our purpose, the surge of 49ers setting out across the country in the years that followed 1848 led to inevitable conflicts between white settlers and the indigenous populations of the Plains region. So, in 1851, the United States government signed the Fort Laramie Treaty with a large representative body of Cheyennes, Arapahoes, Sioux, Crow, Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, and Assiniboine nations. The treaty acknowledged that these tribes, their acknowledged these tribes' ownership and sovereignty over their land. The U.S. received permission to build roads and forts along the overland route to protect settlers and to provide supplies during their journey. The treaty secured promises from the indigenous groups that settlers would be granted safe passage as long as they and their herds remained within the boundaries of the trail system. It provided that Indian agents would um, settle disputes between tribes and settlers. They would be the intermediaries. And it offered a $50,000 annuity for 50 years in exchange for these concessions. So $50,000 per year for each group for 50 years. Now, the Senate changed it from 50 years to 10 years, and then they ratified this, making it the law of the land. The Crow rejected the change to 10 years, but all the rest of the tribes agreed. So this was a legally authorized, ratified by the Senate treaty. Constitutionally speaking, uh, a ratified treaty supersedes even laws that are passed by Congress. They are the highest, most binding laws of the land at least as far as the Constitution is concerned. And if we care about the Constitution, treaties are number one at the top. And so we'll leave the story there for today with peace between Plains people and the U.S. with an American acknowledgement that Colorado and the Western Plains generally were owned 
and controlled by the indigenous groups who controlled them. Seems like nothing but blue skies ahead. Looking forward to see how these crazy kids work it all out. Seems like it's going to be great. I think everything works out fine for everybody. Mike, how can the people contact us? Oh, I was just waiting for you to say why is going to show up in the next episode. The fuck everything up. Um, but maybe not. Uh, how can the people contact? Well, if you really want to reach out with any suggestions via email, it's unbalancedviews at gmail.com. Or you can find us at pretty much anywhere you find your favorite podcast, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else that you can find your favorite podcast. And please share. <laughs> please like. Please comment and come back for the next episode. Five stars Please. only. Five stars That's only. Right. All right. Five stars and, only. Uh, so what do you guys think so far? So I have to do some like cutting and pasting as I do this. So uh so yes, yeah, so what do you guys what do you what are we what are we what are we what are we what are we, what are we, what are we So you could you could paste mine after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I'm I mean I'm just gonna I don't know, kind of listening along, and it's like kind of find it. It's fascinating to hear some of that history because it is just stuff that not everybody knows about. Sure, sure. I mean, that's the and idea. Make sure you you have your prospecting voice ready for the <laughs> for the next episode. We'll see what uh we'll see what I can do. All right. Well, until next time. Bye bye. <laughs>